glad to be here. I was here two years ago. There was different director, different room. There must be another room also. You were here at the time? Okay, okay, okay. But you were at my talk or no? No, no, I was not. Okay. A very interesting, uh, very interesting experience I had. So, uh, let me just give you a little bit of my background and uh, in, in international affairs. I lived in the U.S. for about 45 years, 46 years. So I tell my American audiences that I've lived there longer than they have because most of them haven't, they're younger than that. Uh, I worked in the corporate world in all areas as entrepreneur, as a corporate executive and whatever and always engaged the establishment intellectually, writing and de debating, went to academics, a lot of academic debates in India studies and South Asian studies and things of that sort, and media, uh, engaged with the mainstream media people quite a, quite a few times. I also uh, got to know the world. Uh, so I got to know India uh, sitting there and looking at what the embassy is doing and not doing. and. Uh, what other countries are doing. I also uh, started companies in a large number of countries in Asia, Latin America, East, Eastern Europe and so on. And again I got to see, not really know about those countries and their cultures and governments but also what is India doing in all those countries. Uh, so my perspective is from very unconventional source than what you people are taught. And so I'll give you a lot of views and then I want to encourage as much uh, interaction as possible. I found throughout my stay in the US that the Indian embassy was always outsmarted by the Pakistani lobby for some reason. They were always very clever. Um, I, had, I, I started a petition against uh, CNN uh, during the, the Kargil thing. Uh, and uh, because they're just giving the Pakistani point of view. And they would give this Pakistani point of view, and this Musharraf was his great ally and all that, Wolf Blitzer, who's still there, big shot, before the time of uh, Farid Zakaria. And I would just go on mentioning that this is all one-sided, very analytical that you talked about. But this view, you didn't invite the other view. This became such a big petition that CNN called us, called me, and said, we want to invite you, we want to work it out, we want to talk about it. So we sent a delegation to Atlanta, their headquarters, basically giving them this information that it's all one-sided. They said that Indian embassy doesn't bring their people. Pakistan embassy always brings. We've called, asked them for opinion, but they don't show up. This is actually their view. And I would say I got to know one Akbar Ahmed, who was in, uh, previously uh, for uh, Pakistan ambassador to UK. And when he retired, he became a visiting professor, he became a scholar in international relations. So he came to Princeton University for a year and we became friends. And he said, you're the only person I can talk to about these kind of things going on because the embassy doesn't want to talk to me about it, the Indian NRIs don't want to, they want to talk about IT export and cricket and all that. But you want to talk about issues that they find too controversial. So I became actually friends with him and then he joined American University and he would invite me to his class and talk about things that are, he felt are very important to talk. So that is before 9-11 and all that. And he said that uh, the Taliban is going to be a very serious problem. He told me that. 
and the, none of the Indians want to deal with it because they believe that it's politically incorrect and it is secular and things of that sort. So I have gone through quite a lot of personal experiences that I can speak from. And uh, I feel that the Ministry of External Affairs, this is not, uh, I'm not evaluating the latest regime. I have not, I don't know that things have changed. But traditionally, they have not lived up to what I would consider a good standard of uh, representing India. I, when I started my foundation and wanted to represent India, I've looked at Japan Foundation, how they're doing it, China Institute, how they're doing it, Korea Foundation, uh, Council on Islamic Relations, various French institutes, Russian institutes, all of them in New York, Washington, these kind of places. And I found that they had amazing programs to engage the media, engage the uh, intellectual sphere, the, the academics, and the Indian presence was not there. So one Mr. Rath was the was appointed when he was appointed consul general. I think about 15, 12, 15 years ago. So a lot of people told him he was a listener type. So a lot of people said you should talk, go and talk to this fellow. He has lot of lot of things to say. So he showed up in my house, spent a whole day, uh, whole day to understand what is the pers pers the misperception about India. Because my foundation had sponsored a project in uh, Pennsylvania State University to study the portrayal of India in American media, which I think is something that you Indian government should be doing. I, I did it. Uh, the portrayal of India and stereotypes about Indians in American television. Again, I did it. Uh, the portrayal and misportrayal of uh, India in American school textbooks. Again, I started all that initiative. These are initiatives the government should be doing. So the government was not interested, were scared, were it was whatever it is, they're just not very engaged. And I would find that uh, uh, the, the governments in, from other countries, you know, China, Japan, all these kind of countries are very engaged in, in these matters. So I, uh, I um, uh, began to do these things on my own, just as a, out of my own intellectual interest. So I have been fighting these battles pretty much on my own. And uh, no help from MEA or any other uh, part of the government. Now, my perspective is that the conventional, well, they, first of all, I want you to know that uh, United States invests very heavily in what they call area studies. So South Asia is one area, China is an area, Latin America, Africa, Russia, the, you know, the major areas of the world. This was started after World War II when they said that the British Empire is over, who's going to safeguard the Western interests? So there were meetings in the 50s, Ford Foundation, CIA, FBI, they had these meetings, and these records are now public because it's more than 25 years, so these things are public. And they, they decided that uh, uh, they should create areas of research to uh, understand them, send, put, set up NGOs to kind of get in with the Western point of view in the guise of human rights and whatever. So the, that approach has been very successful. Some of these big foundations created a big network of NGOs in India. Uh, and US government started, the, the, the US Congress enacted a law called Title VI. That's a Title VI. Under that uh, US uh, law, uh, universities can apply for federal funding to start area studies. So about 30 universities exist that do South Asia studies. And many universities do studies of other places. So I have been an ardent follower of what South Asia studies is up to. And I thought 
it's a job of the US government, Indian government to find out what are they studying about us. If we are the target of their study, who are they, why, who are they, who funds them, what are they looking for, what are they concluding, you know. But there's no Indian representation. I go to their conferences, their history conference, uh, religion conference, anthropology conference, political science conference, been going there for a long time. And I built a database of who's who in the American uh, intellectual apparatus studying India, built a database. Until 10 years ago, I had students uh, keeping it current, but then I stopped because it's just too much work. I can't do, keep up with it. But I learned a lot of how things, how things work uh, in the U.S. when it comes to looking at other parts of the world, especially India. And this whole, uh, and I found that uh, in places like Harvard, in places like Columbia, uh, the Pakistanis are very actively engaged in intervening with this study of South Asia, putting their point of view, and Indians were not. So, Mr. Rath, who was appointed, was the first person uh, from the diplomatic corps who actually took interest in what I was doing. He organized a big uh, roundtable event in the, in the consulate in New York where I was the speaker and he called a lot of people. In fact, all my opponents from the New York area, he called them and said, you listen to, and we had a nice lively exchange that was very informative. Then one day, uh, he calls me that he is in his limo on his way to Harvard. There is some South Asia event. And uh, he says, tell me what I should say, you know, because I became kind of his informal uh, advisor kind of you know, on this. So I said, uh, you know, tell me who else is speaking, who organized it, these details matter. So he says, I, I don't know who the other people are, but I was just invited, I'm just going there to make some remarks. So he called back to tell me the names of these people who were organizing and who were uh, going to moderate and so on, and who the other speakers were. So I told him, this person is a Kashmir separatist, he's known for that. This person is a Khalistani, he's known for that. Uh, and, and he's walking into a, an ambush. He was petrified, and that is exactly what they're going to do to him. So you see, that state of unpreparedness. Then I asked him, doesn't MEA have a cell in Delhi or somewhere, where a think tank, where if somebody invites you, you can run those names and see if they're blacklisted or what they are, because you ought to at least know who they are. He says there's no such support. So I was his consultant on who's who in this world of intellectuals that are studying India, that at least informally I could tell him, be careful of this fellow and don't go there and things like that. Very strange that an MEA, big country, couldn't care less about this whole thing. Even today, I don't think, China has a annual report on United States study of China. So they know where are the major China studies going on, who are the professors, what they publish, who is favorable, who is unfavorable, who should get the visa, who should not get the visa, they have it. And a conference in uh, uh, Princeton I attended uh, on problems of China studies from the American point of view, where they were complaining that China is very strict on what you say, what you don't say. They want a copy of your report, research findings before you leave the country. They want to, then they want to give a rebuttal. They want to, they, they, are, not, they are tracking how they are being studied. In India, not only we are not tracking them, we are actually very honored that they are studying us. We are very honored. We are delighted that they are paying attention to us because God forbid if they, we, we were ignored. So, regardless of what somebody is saying, we just aren't that uh, engaged in terms of, uh, you know, representing our point of view. 
Worse still, in the last 10 years, a lot of Indians have actually been appropriated. A lot of Indians have joined that other intellectual framework. Uh, so the resistance to the, the, what is being said isn't there. In fact, they are appropriating our people to uh, join them. And so I call them uh, sepoys because that's what the sepoys long ago did for the British. But those were physical uh, fighting kind of sepoys. These are intellectual sepoys, the hiring Indian sepoys. Uh, a good example is Harvard. I did a study of Harvard portrayal of China and Harvard portrayal of India. I commissioned this study about 10 years ago. It's now no longer it's no longer that stark a difference. But at that time, it was very clear that in the study of China, in China studies going on in Harvard, no Tibetan perspective was allowed. Whereas the study of India, all the Kashmir separatists and this separatist and that separatist were staple, had to be there. Big difference. If, if uh, an event was going on concerning China and some students or Tibetans came, they would be thrown out. The security would get rid of them. I know this because I work a lot with the Tibetan community in New York area. I go and speak for them all the time right in front of the Chinese consulate. They have an event once a year. They call me. Sometimes I go and speak there. So I, I know that what they are saying. That they are kind of persona non grata if they go and uh, raise any voice in these places, in places like Harvard, we studied Harvard. Whereas the same is not true for uh, you know those who are separatists or creating trouble against India. And I felt that this is a very strange thing that this goes on. Um, so I um, I think there is a there are some uh, basic uh, issues which start in India itself. We don't have area studies in our universities. We don't, I mean, JNU has some international studies. I don't want to downgrade it, but I don't think they go out and do original research. I mean, they, they look at how many Westerners come and as anthropologists, they go into this village or that village studying this caste, that caste, whatever they're doing. There's a huge army of this, and this has been going on for a long time. This is their data gathering. And all this is data that they supply to their own database. And they have a perspective, their own drishti, their own lens with which they are seeing us. But we do not have similar uh, kind of uh, big academic apparatus going and studying, living in Nepal, some other group in Pakistan, some other group in Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or China or USA. We just don't have it. Most of it is secondary sources, what's been published there by somebody else. So it's recycling, regurgitating. Uh, America's own perspectives on itself, including you know those who are on the right, those who are on the left, but hardly any original work. And I find that uh, uh, lack of area studies means that the diplomats are not real subject matter experts on a particular country. Uh, I have a cousin who's retired as an IFS uh, officer. She uh, was ambassador to several places. So she went to some East European country, then she went to some African country, then she went to some you know, Eastern Asian country. I mean, it's like they keep moving them around. Uh, and it, in the US, you, are, you, are, you study, you get a PhD in South Asian studies from you know, uh, uh, Johns Hopkins, or for example, and then you have a career in the State Department, that's what you do. You really know the languages, you have friends in that country, uh, you have a network of people, uh, you know, in, in that country you are specializing, you are almost talking like a native there. So it, that kind of ev expertise we don't have. Because when I talk to uh, people in the embassy and uh, consulates, I find that their knowledge is not 
as deep. And I've lived there. I'm, I'm not a professional, but I can talk a lot more about these, about what's going on in the in the U.S. and its history and and how to answer back when they when they ask you an embarrassing question about human rights or they ask you, a, uh, they put you on the spot. Uh, this is happening even more and more. The use of embarrassment and human rights as a negotiating tool. So we'll put sanctions on you on this on this database that we have about you, uh, and this can be used as a negotiating tool to get something out of you. And so China knows how to talk back. Uh, when the U.S. produces a annual report on human rights violations around the world, India apologizes generally. I don't. I, I think the recently India has taken a stronger stand, not apologized and said, "Okay, mind your own business." But traditionally, the trend has been apologizing. China has prepared its human rights violation of the United States, uh, U.S. human rights violations. So uh, within a couple of weeks when the U.S. puts out its human rights report, you know, making accusations on China, the Chinese people put out their human rights report saying, okay, you've done this human rights violation here and there. They talk back because they're studying the U.S. as much as U.S. is studying China. China studies uh, institutes are China-controlled. Uh, the most prestigious uh, you know, journals to get your article in as an academician are Chinese-controlled, uh, many of them in Mandarin. Many of the great conferences about China studies are in China. Indology, the study of India, traditionally was a British en enterprise. Uh, it's it morphed into South Asian studies in the United States. Uh, it is the most prestigious journals and conferences are all held in the West. The, the, the most important places you go get a PhD are in the West. Uh, interestingly, when I've asked traditional Sanskrit scholars, where would you rather have your PhD, they've said it would be nice to have it in Harvard, Columbia, Chicago, or Oxford, or Heidelberg. These are the places where Sanskrit, the most prestigious places to get. So uh, we have neglected this uh, the study of ourselves, the study of our own civilization. And my... Uh, Foundation has one of the new initiatives is called Swadeshi Indology, uh, which is a response to Western Indology. We started this. Uh, we did one Swadeshi Indology conference in IIT Madras. Uh, we finished one yesterday in Delhi, in the IGNCA. We did a joint thing. And we're going to publish these books and so on. And we're going to have a couple more. So we are taking on important topics that affect Indian civilization's uh, portrayal and uh, revert and critique the Western portrayal on those topics and re replace it with ours, argue. So at least we have a space. It's not an easy thing to do because the momentum and the volume of work that the West has done is so huge. The level of rigor, the, you know, the, the number of people involved is so many. Uh, and from our side, half our people are not even interested because they're working on the other side. It's more lucrative. Uh, so I start with young scholars. And we groom them, we train them, and when they are nice and ready, then the other side gives them twice the salary and hires them. We've been poached. Our, our uh, brightest scholars often get poached by uh, other people because they are nice, uh, nice to have. So it's a very tough job. And I keep wondering, why, when will the Indian government get involved and do this? We need think tanks. Now the biggest, uh, now another trend is American think tanks are coming to India. So the, in the 50s, the strategy was that there's a Soviet influence, very strong in the third world. It has to be countered. 
So it, the leftist people that the Soviet Union is nurturing. So Ford Foundation should go and befriend leftist people in these developing countries. Even though at home, United States is right-wing, uh, free market, capitalist country, but in the countries which were socialist at the time, uh, pro-Soviet tilt, uh, the idea was go there, create NGOs, fund these leftist people, bring them on board. Either you try to swing them around, turn them around, neutralize them, or at least keep an eye on what they're up to. So this is very successful. Uh, Ford Foundation's biggest uh, country uh, is India, biggest country. Uh, by far, the second biggest would be like a fraction of it. So all these foundations came. The, the, the idea was to have intervention in the hinterland, in the villages, the tribal, so-called tribal areas, and bring the, the elite, the thinkers, uh, into NGOs and causes and so on, and give a whole new discourse on, uh, create a whole new discourse on human rights, feminism, uh, you know, tribalism, minorityism, this kind of a thing, really funding that in a big way. And you wonder why Ford Foundation doesn't study, you know, America's race problems, all kind of problems, same problem there, why they have to go around the world to help if they've got these problems on their own. And also, a complete blind spot to the domestic problems in the United States. So you, when you go to the NGOs that have been funded very heavily in India to go supply data on all this kind of problem in India, uh, the interesting thing is that the very same uh, NGOs are completely blind to the fact that the donor agencies, right in their backyard, they're having worse problems. So uh, this has been a very successful uh, intervention on the part. I, I, feel that uh, they are very professional people. They have done a very good job of winning over a large number of Indians, young Indian people. Uh, the whole writing of Indian history and so on has been taken over by this kind of Indian, uh, well-educated, modern English-speaking Indians who they've uh, won over. Now, they realized, I attended a, uh, an event uh, where they were talking about uh, uh, what should, uh, what should U.S intellectuals, what is the role of U.S. intellectuals in the Modi era? So they said, you know, now we got to do something different because maybe for many years there might be a different climate. So one of the conclusions was that we should set up uh, think tanks and we should, uh, we should bring the kids, the young children, the boys, the sons and daughters of uh, uh, Indian government people into these think tanks to get influence. And other important people with high potential, young Indians with high potential, who are not the village type. So it's not the intervention like NGOs were intervening for village, rural India, lower social demographics India, that was their target, to study them and engage them and build leaders on their wavelength and whatever. Uh, the, new, the new intervention is to put up very high-class, five-star uh, treatment, uh, you know, these uh, think tanks, uh, American think tanks, and bring in the Indians who are interested onto their wavelength. So I know some uh, Indians working in these think tanks, uh, either related to some important parent or relative in the government, or well-known intellectuals or high-potential people. And then, of course, the strategy, if you look at, for instance, Eisenhower Foundation in Washington, uh, they have a program to basically take over uh, appropriate high-potential Indian or, or young people all over the world and bring them onto their wavelength and groom them 
give have helped them in their careers, lobby for them, get them you know built up. So there's a loyalty uh, both ways. They help these people's careers, and then these people are obviously loyal to them. This is this is interesting stuff I study, and I write about it. I, I and I'm not aware that the MEA really looks out into these kind of areas a whole lot. So um, I want to leave a lot of time for questions. I just want to say that um, uh, the international studies knowledge, knowledge of international studies, is no longer just limited to governments. Uh, there was a time when you went to international relations department somewhere in the US or international studies department and most of the people would be wanting a diplomatic career. Now you will find uh, church groups and other religious groups are very interested in, in international relations you know, knowledge, uh, human rights groups, uh, multinationals. Multinationals doing a lot of study in international relations because obviously if you're going to build some you know, oil pipeline in China, you need to know a lot about that. So the knowledge of inter the world and foreign countries and diplomacy is not just limited to government people doing that. It's also very largely in the hands of many other kind of institutions. So one of the things is what's the role of an Indian diplomat? What should be the relationship of an Indian diplomat with all these other people? What should be the relationship with Indian multinationals? Because they can help you. But are they being brought in enough this is, the, is the question I raise. And what about uh, human rights, the whole, all this whole human rights cottage industry that exists uh, around the world, which, is, can, which can be a very big nuisance. It is well coordinated at the western end. The government and their human rights watchdogs, they are well coordinated. The religious institutions that are in, have a vested interest, they are all coordinated. But in India, are, is the, are, are these things coordinated? Is the MEA coordinated with Indian multinationals? Indian, you know, non-governmental international type of uh, institutions or is it insulated kind of like we do our own thing. So I will uh, leave it at that and then maybe, and maybe we can throw it open to some questions. Thank you. Yeah, please. Uh, sir, don't you think the issues that you raised, uh, most of them are concern of the uh, state in which your economy is. Uh, for, for example, you say that China is very well protected. It's, So there's two points in your question. One is economy and one is China Christianity. There's two separate things. You know? No, sir. Uh, it was an example uh, to show that when your economy is powerful, you are more easily able to propagate your culture. And yeah. So I will answer both aspects. Okay. So as far as economy is concerned, uh, China started this China Institute uh, 25, 30 years ago when they did not have such a strong economy. They started the Confu Confucian Institutes. They said that uh, we are going to become modern but not Western. We are going to become modern with the Confucian ideology. Professor Tu Weming in Harvard, a friend of mine, he's a Chinese, and he's gone on promoting and the Chinese government encouraging him a lot to say that uh, modernization is not the same thing as Westernization. We have our own modernization. 
we will have all the technology, all those things we will do, but we are not going to uh, become Western. We will keep our heritage as a Confucian thought, Confucian country. And they created a few hundred Confucian institutes around the world. I think India is one of the places that they have not uh, set up. I am not aware, maybe they have. But at least in the past, the Indian government was very scared to let them in. But in many countries, they set up these Confucian institutes. They're teaching Mandarin. They're teaching their ideology. They're really kind of a, almost like a quasi-imperial thing. Especially Africa, they're doing that. Now, the starting point of this was in the 80s and 90s. So the point to uh, the, that should we wait until we are rich. In the case of China, you can't really say that that has been the case. Uh, the second point is China has the Muslim, uh, the, the Christian population. There's a big difference. Uh, Chinese government says any religion can be practiced. Buddhism can be practiced. Uh, they're not against the Dalai Lama and all that. They're not against the Tibetan Buddhism. But they want the nexus and the headquarters in the decision making to be based in China and not foreign headquarters. So bishops, bishops and priests and so on of a church have to be appointed domestically. They can't come. The Vatican cannot appoint. The foreign headquarters of the Presbyterian Church or Baptist Church does not call the shots. So you are Christian as a matter of faith, but not a political allegiance to a foreign headquarters. There is a big difference there. So if India were to do what China is doing, the similar policy would be that you can practice any faith you want, but you are not going to report to a foreign headquarters because then your allegiance is different. If your job depends on what some guy sitting in Rome thinks, then your loyalty also will shift. So Chinese Christianity is different in that particular regard. It is a very important regard. That is why... Uh, Panchen Lama, they try to build up the Panchen Lama who is second after the Dalai Lama. They try to say that he, and because he lives in Tibet, so in China, so they try to build up, they have claimed that this is the real voice of the Tibetan Buddhism, not the Dalai Lama because he is based outside, it, outside the country. So to them, uh, nationalism comes first and as long as a religion of any kind is nationalistic and pro-China, they, they don't have a problem. This is a very, very interesting kind of uh, position uh, regarding that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's getting worse. Uh, I mean, I do a lot of uh, reviews of these. I did Mohenjo Daro. I do, uh, there's a there's a uh, serial coming out, which is this Aryan Davidian conflict. They're trying to really put some, uh, you know, exacerbate the fault lines. There's a TV serial like that coming out now. So this is happening. I don't know. I don't think in a free society you can clamp down on it. But there can be a counter narrative. There should be something called the Indian grand narrative. And I'm trying to develop that as, and I can only do so much as a private person. This should be a government project that you as ambassadors of India's brand should have a grand narrative that you project. Every... In your careers, you will find that a Japanese, no matter how modern he is and whatnot, he, he clearly understands the Japanese narrative in a very cohesive, unified, patriotic way, way back in history. So does the Chinese, so does the French person, so does the Russian. Certainly, the American is exceedingly clear that we are the American exceptionalism kind of an idea and the founding fathers and whatnot and whatnot. So, in the case of India... I will now tell you, when I came back last time, it was, I forgot, 2013 you were saying, um, the group, my topic was, uh, where is India in the world imagination and what is the job of the diplomats to project this Indian grand narrative? 
and I gave examples of what is the Indian grand narrative. The talk was different than today. It was here are the building blocks of the Indian grand narrative. People should know and you should project it because you run into controversies and issues. People will try to bring you down and you should know what the facts are. So uh, the group was divided equally. Half the group were very happy that I was, I was advocating the Indian grand narrative that we need diplomacy on it. And they were saying, we need to learn more. How do we learn more? This is good, good and all that. The other half, interestingly enough, were quite troubled by it. I had, I had somebody standing up saying, I'm from Northeast. I don't belong to this Indian grand narrative, sir. I don't know what you're talking about. Another one said, I come from a community uh, where we've been oppressed. I do not subscribe to this Indian grand narrative. I was quite surprised and quite shocked that, you know, it's like hiring your head of marketing to go and market your your product and whatever, and he, he actually believes that this is a useless product. So how do you be a diplomat if you really aren't convinced of the legitimacy of the Indian grand narrative? What, what in fact keeps India together? Is, is it just uh, politics, army, Bollywood, cricket team? Is it those, are those things enough? Is there such a thing as an Indian grand narrative which any large country, any complex country would need for, for itself, for its unity. So I think that the uh, Bollywood is able to do all these things because there hasn't been a counter-narrative which is, would be a pro-India grand narrative and HRD has failed in doing that. Uh, Ministry of Culture is, exists, they have failed in doing that. Look at ICCR. Dr. Lokesh Chandra was the head of it. He's a very good friend of mine and we have known him. In fact, my foundation gave him the Lifetime Achievement Award back in the 90s. So we respect him. But every time I talk to him, ICCR, they got a Nehru Center here, there, whatnot. I mean, under the previous regime, they were, the, the kind of speakers they were bringing are these very pseudo-left, liberal, anti-narrative kind of people, more interested in championing the voices of, uh, you know, uh, kind of subversion than anything else. They would bring these kind of people. And now, uh, they're not bringing those kinds of people, but they're very risk-averse. They're, they're the ICCR is uh, Indian Council of Cultural Research. The R for research means they ought to be doing some research. They ought to be investigating like what I'm doing. They ought to be doing this work, but they're not. So it's, uh, it's uh, kind of more like, you know, I think that the level of the depth is not there in the kind of programs they're doing. So frankly, I think the government has something to do. The government has a responsibility uh, to, and uh, they have not, uh, uh, India is a very fractured ideological kind of a base and you and therefore the an overall unifying narrative doesn't really exist that would have a consensus because you need a, a nation in nation building includes a narrative which the the intellectuals and various segments of the of the country buy into and they have to buy into it voluntarily you cannot impose it on it, people on it so unless you unless there is this such a narrative which process is a complex process that has to start I mean, it's a, it's a volatile country. It's a fragile country. It's a country that's always having these kinds of problems. So Bollywood, the fact that Bollywood succeeds with these kind of anti-India countries, anti-India things in India, forget that Slumdog Millionaire was, you know, promoted overseas and all that, of course. But in India, it did very well. And all these sort of, these, these kind of movies present, presenting this view do very well here also sometimes. So... It, 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 it gives you, it's a barometer into what the, uh, what's going on within India also. Yes, please. Uh, sir, uh, when we went on Bharat Darshan, uh, we visited the uh, Northeast India and um, it 
was like um, what uh, are people in the mainland of India apart from the northeast? We think northeast India should be a single entity, but they have their own big cultural diversity among the different states. Yes. But um, uh, there is no literature as of now so, which uh, highlights the various cultural diversity about the entire northeastern part of India that is available in the mainland. Yes. So what can be done to rectify that? So. And Yeah. So since I'm here in a government establishment, I'm going to put responsibility to the government. When I give talk to the corporate people, I put tell them they have to be responsible. So you know, the, all segments have to hold responsibility. HRD ministry has failed. Uh, even the new government in two and a half years, they failed to put these kind of things in textbooks. The Indian kids should be raised on the pride of different places. The history of this state, that state, that state, the great past. It has to be documented. The Indian grand narrative to me is a mosaic of many narratives of many people. These have to be done. But you know, uh, for I was talking to some Marwadis who are very rich people. I was saying, now why isn't there a history of Rajasthan, very definitive history of Rajasthan from the ancient times? Why isn't there? You guys, there's no, you can't say you don't have money and all that. But they're not thinking like this. Then once uh, uh, Dr. Karan Singh, who's a friend, we've known each other for like 20 years. And uh, I was giving a talk at the India International Center 2005, two evenings in a row, uh, the, you know, the, the perceptions of India and misperceptions of India overseas. And, you know, Amartya Sen was there, some various odd kind of people were there. So uh, in the comment, uh, Karan Singh said uh, he will solve, he will, he, 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 he suggested that you know, he was a candidate quite openly for president of India at that time. He was a candidate to be president of India, if you remember, in 2005, six type of time. So I said that, Dr. Singh, president of India requires that you have to champion the case for India. But you as the uh, son of the Maharaja of Kashmir, what have you done to champion their case? And he had no answer. I said, look, Dalai Lama exiled. And look what, how he's gone around the world. He goes to every place and he gives, he's championing the plight of the uh, Tibetan people. So I would say he's a, good, he's a good leader for a certain people. And if, where have you been in terms of a similar stature, similar representation of the Kashmir people that you, you, your family has been ruling? And it's one thing to say you just want an elite status and you want to go around and be considered a big shot for your own self. That is not what would be a good president. You have, what have you done for your people? What have you done for Kashmir? If you could say you've done so much for Kashmir, now you're ready to do for India, I would, I would support that. I told him that right on his face. And, and he had no answer to that. So you see, our people, uh, we are very Delhi-centric. I'm a Delhi wala. I raised here, went to St. Stephen's College and born, you know, Born in Punjab but raised in Delhi, so I am I am I have a pride of Delhi. But I think the Delhi-centric uh, intelligentsia are exceedingly narrow in their perspective about India per se, and this is something not being addressed adequately by our Ministry of Culture, by our HRD Ministry. That is where the thing belongs. Yes. So nationalism and uh, patriotism are very subjective. Yes. You mentioned about the Chinese method of promoting nationalism by looking into their past. Uh, you mentioned about Confucian, uh, Confucianism. Uh, so we in India have a very diverse culture. 
we do not have a single philosophy so that we can look behind and promote that culture. So how do you think we should uh, uh, do these things in India, that promoting uh, nationalism and patriotism? Very, very good question. It's a tough question, so therefore it's a very good question. So, uh, I have coined the term open architecture. You know, it's a computer term because I come from that background. And open architecture is that you can accommodate lots of things. Uh, it's an architecture that shows unity, uh, underlying there is a unity. But this unity allows a lot of flexibility and diversity and many different kind of components can be brought in. So I am also building a model of Indian civilization as an open architecture, which can bring in many voices. And this has, a, I have a book called Being Different. Uh, uh, in that book, I explain uh, why our dharmic system has been able to accommodate a lot of diversity of all kinds of faiths and all kinds of philosophies. And it boils down to not an ex no exclusivity claim that my truth is the only possible one. And for me to be valid in my faith, I have to negate anything that differs. We haven't had that. We haven't had that exclusivity claim. So uh, in times of politics and all, of course, people will say that. But you know, what works for me is great. But what works for you, I, I will respect it. So I promote the idea of mutual respect, meaning I respect you, but I, you should respect me. It cannot be one way. I won't just respect you. I won't respect ISIS because they're not going to respect others. So it has to be a mutual respect. I respect you. You should also respect me. And we respect difference. So the, the open architecture build is, it thrives on the principle of difference with mutual respect. So we do not want homogeneity. We are not collapsing. It's not reductionist. But this difference is in equilibrium with a lot of different things with mutual respect. That's, an, that's I think, a, an Indian ideal. We, we need to take such things, such principles, and complete a whole grand narrative based on these. So the narrative of India is not, you know, people think that history is only about wars and who killed whom and what happened and what, what not. But nar the narrative also has to do with the science, arts, uh, because what was happening historically was not just people having wars. People were also mathematicians, they were metallurgists, they were medical breakthroughs, you know, all kinds of other things going on. So the history of civilization includes all of those things. And when you look at that, you will find that uh, communities of all sorts have contributed. It's, a, it's quite amazing. The, con the communities of all sorts have contributed. So the problem we run into is that, let's say I'm willing, I want to promote this open architecture, mutual respect. But the other person may not want to have mutual respect. The other person has been told that it is the only one right. Now we have a problem. After 9-11, uh, uh, after 9-11, the Pakistanis in USA suddenly felt very vulnerable because, you know, there was a lot of this movement against Muslims and so on. So suddenly there was this, this Indian-Pakistani bye-bye starting. Every Pakistani wanted to say, we are South Asian, we are, we are Desis, that became the term. So you go around, Pakistanis love to say we are Desis because that hides the difference, you know, we are all one. So this Desi radio station in Dallas invited me to be interviewed and it was run by a Pakistani. So I went there and they said, Rajiv Bhai, we are so great. There was a, there was a, there was some Samelan, Hinduism kind of Samelan, so I had gone for that. They invited me. So he said, we are so honored, we are so diverse, we are happy. We, the Pakistanis in this area, love to, you know, welcome your, whatever, all these things you're doing. 
So uh, he said, he said I, I like your talk on uh, mutual respect. We also uh, believe in mutual respect. So I said, uh, I want to tell you what I believe in to make sure you respect that. So I believe that I worship the feminine, divine feminine, which they're not allowed to actually. So I worship the divine feminine. I worship images because for me it's not a problem. So these guys hung up because this, this uh, facade of mutual respect was just a facade. I wanted, I really wanted that he would say, yes, this is fine for you. I don't, but it's fine for you. I wish he had said that. I was hoping he would say that. That would be a nice breakthrough. But he couldn't cross that because it was very public. And in front of the public, he couldn't say these things. A lady also called, similar thing happened with her also. That they wanted this idea, they wanted to show that they have mutual respect. But when you have specific things you tell them that are part of my tradition, and I have no problem what he's got in his tradition. I think it's good for him. For me, it's my tradition. But they're not willing to do that. because the, So the blockage comes from that side. That's the problem we are facing. So if you follow the China model, the China model will say uh, all religions should be fine, practiced, but they have to be China-centric. So if you were to say that all these faiths are fine, but they have to be India-centric, not looking up to some headquarters somewhere else and getting orders from them. Because the, my book, Breaking India, talks about foreign interventions into these false lights. And I don't think that there would be inherent built-in clash among these different traditions and philosophies if there wasn't foreign intervention. So that's how I look at it. As I understood, the Indian grand narrative is a combination of different stories, different uh, narratives from different parts of India, which is a mix of everything. But my question is, what if the narrative itself is a questionable? Because different people perceive the narrative in different ways, mm -hmm. going to their community, going to their gender, going to their association with the story. For example, if you see the two grand narratives, the people outside India know is Ramayana and this uh, Ramayana and Mahabharata. But if you see the perspective of the lead role, the Rama, for some Indian people, Rama is God. For some Indian people, Rama is man. For some other, Rama is racist and castist. If you see the same case in Mahabharata, for some, the Draupadi is different. They pursue Draupadi in different ways. They pursue different characters in different ways, even Bishma. Now, when the Indians themselves have different perspectives, and they don't agree on a single fact, how can you build it? I mean, how do you propose to bring on Indian grand narrative? So, bring all these people together on that. Yeah, so it's a good question. It's a very good question. So, uh, we have uh, a tradition of Smriti, which is different from Shruti. So, Shruti is some eternal things, but Smriti is rewritten, recontextualized, re uh, updated. It is not closed book. It is open book. So it's an open architecture. So there's many Ramayans, many, many interpretations of Ramayana. They have existed. They've existed. Internally they've existed. And sort it out. But not with violence with each other. They sort it out, you know. Somebody say, this is my Hamara Ram to that kind of thing, you know. So uh, the localization and contextualization of a of a universal narrative to me in my community is a kind of a very good uh, thing we have. We've we've been able to that's why we've not been stuck in a corner that this is permanent and eternal and if you argue with it, you'll be stoned to death or we haven't had that. Yeah. So I would say that uh, uh, now that's, that's the beauty part. 
But if you look from the, in the British era, the Indologists have doctored some of these things and some of the points you are mentioning are of recent origin. One of the guys I criticize a lot is a, a scholar called Sheldon Pollock. My book Battle for Sanskrit is on him and we've had uh, two conferences on him because he leads a whole new uh, school of thought called Neo-Orientalism. Neo so it's the return of Orientalism but under the veneer and pretext of being Sanskrit scholar. Okay. The previous Orientalists were saying that they are Angres Babus, but now it's like the pretext that hey, I'm, I'm a Sanskrit Pandit doing it. So he, uh, instead of saying this is my new interpretation of Ramayana, uh, he, he puts his ideology in the mouth of Valmiki and says Valmiki really meant this. He didn't say it, but actually he meant it. So I'm psychoanalyzing him. Now, this is a postmodern uh, game that I, I, what's your name? Sridhar? Okay. So, Sridhar really means this, but he, even though he doesn't know. Huh? I'm a doctor, I, I can psychoanalyze him. I can tell what's in his unconscious, which even he doesn't know. So, I'm pulling this out because I've learned how to psychoanalyze him. So, now this Freudian psychoanalysis of even dead people, even people thousands of years back, trying to read between the lines what you think they might have meant, because you put it in a social context of where they lived and you insinuate. And to put them in a social context, you have to fabricate the dates and the chronology. Even though, even yesterday we, we had these panels where we are showing that actually the chronology he gives is fabricated to put Valmiki in a certain era and in a certain time and place so that he can make the claim that he must have done it for a certain motive. So all this fabrication has, is the problem that we are seeing. Because this is done with mischief and malintent. It is not from within the tradition. Within the tradition, there has been debate, there has been diversity, there has been dissent. I mean, the whole bhakti movement was dissent, you see. So, uh, I, I love that part of our culture, that you, we have, you know, disagreements and this and that. It's kind of a marketplace of ideas that we people, and there's no one fixed thing that everybody must follow. And we do not have a top-down church. There's no top-down sort of authority. So, people are free to choose. It's, it's actually a very free system we have. But what I'm against is this foreign intervention because they bring an agenda, they have a lot of money and they become, they outsmart us and that undermining of the civilization is very dangerous for the survival of India. IIT Kharagpur was uh, 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 about to commemorate their 50th anniversary. I'm just giving the background to this. It was around uh, 2001 or something too. So they approached Infinity Foundation for uh, sponsoring some conferences. And among all the topics, there'd be conference on this, one on that. Uh, the one that attracted my attention was one called Mind Sciences. So I looked at Mind Sciences conference and I found that all the panels, all the speakers were talking about Western models of mind. You know, Freudian this and this theory of this and that. And so I wrote back to them that you should do at least one panel on Indian models of mind and then I'll sponsor the whole conference. And they wrote back a very 
kind of a look, locking, looking down, kind of knocking this idea down letter which I keep with me, saying that uh, we are not chauvinists, uh, we are scientists, uh, what Indian model, that sort of thing. Okay. So I went and got hold of my Western white friends who I know are very much uh, immersed in Indian thought. So one is Bob Thurman, who's a Buddhist, who runs the Center for Buddhist Studies. He's the chair of Columbia University's religion, very big figure. He's uh, Uma Thurman's father, very dear friend, very nice man. And so I said, you know, you've always told me how the whole world of psychology in the West has been influenced by Buddhist meditation, Buddhist models. So why don't we have you go and present? Then there's another person who was a Sri Aurobindo follower. He's a psychiatrist and he's creating all these models of uh, neuroscience and whatnot based on these ideas. And there's somebody else who at Cambridge University had written a translation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which I think is a theory of mind. It's a psychology. So I got four or five of these Western guys and said, this is your payback time. This is time to return a favor to the mother tradition that has look, given you all this knowledge. And rather than taking all this knowledge, building big careers and never saying thank you, you go back and what I want you to do is do not present a Westernized version. So be, be very clear, who was your guru? What did he teach? Quote the original text, what you learned, and then how you came back to the West, how you made a career, what you are practicing here. They did that. First of all, when they sent me their abstracts, I sent it to IIT Kharagpur. They immediately accepted it because now some Gora guys will be talking. So it must be okay. Now we can talk like that. Now it's not chauvinistic. So I played this trick. So the, uh, they, when they went there, uh, they got standing ovations. So we thought this is a good idea now. So I said to them that, uh, and so many of the Indian delegates from various universities, you know, mind sciences, psychology, cognitive science were there. They started inviting these guys. They come to Kerala, come to this place, that place. So I said, accept all the invitation, we'll fund you. Just go and keep talking like this. Let's see what happens. So for four or five years in a row, uh, Infinity Foundation kept sponsoring all kind of events on mind sciences and psychology where these Western people were representing India. Western people representing India. That's very interesting. And then they created an association of Indian psychology, these guys. And then we gave somebody a grant to write a two-volume textbook on uh, Indian models of mind. So the idea is Indian models of mind, from Sankhya to all, all sorts of, you know, Kashmir Shaivism, various models of mind, to teach them alongside the Western theories of mind. So that's what we are trying to do. Uh, we, we are not saying there is one theory, because it's not. There are many, many views many theories, like in the western area, there's many views, they're contended. Uh, they're all based on kind of an inner experience. The western approach to mind sciences has been that I'm the clinical doctor and I do research on you. And ours has been that I'm the yogi and I'm investigating myself. Uh, yogi is not a third person inquiry, third person meaning the separation between observer and observed. So I'm looking at the, we are at the two ends of the microscope. I'm looking at this creature in the microscope. So the objective view, and I'm the subject who's viewing it. Whereas the first person view is that the observer is looking inside. Okay. So the first person view and the third person view are different approaches. And I think that both have a value. So we started championing this Indian models of mind and psychology about 15, eight, 15 years or so after this IIT Kharagpur thing. And since then I've told, told this incident to the IIT Kharagpur lady who wrote me that letter and she now invites me to talk and all that. But she, they realize that it's a different time. They, they, they have grown. They've also grown. So that's our uh, view of this. 
it, I, my own books on this are unfinished business. I really need to go back and finish them because I, I did quite a lot of work on this first-person empiricism and third-person empiricism. And there is also second-person empiricism, which I, I started to discover. So I think this Indian models of psychology are, very, are now very important. Uh, the, the amount of interest in neuroscience on higher states of consciousness, meditation, all based on clinical research with Buddhist meditators and yogis and so on is very large now. But they, the credit goes to the third person empiricist who's making the measurement, not the first person yogi who's accomplishing it. And I say it's like this, that you are the athlete who, ra who ran the fast race and broke the record. I'm the one with the watch stop who measured it. I get the medal. I get the medal because I observed you and measured it and, and wrote an article on you. And you, the one who actually accomplished it, don't even, you're not even acknowledged. Some footnote that there were these subjects and all that. So uh, it, that's my sense of this. So you, you have interacted extensively with uh, scholars and ethologists and orientalists from the West. I want to understand um, why or what motives they would have for undermining the civilization of India or breaking India, uh, as you said. Because for all you know, India is the only viable democracy in Asia and it is in their interest to have a prosperous India. It would make more sense if China is trying to break this. Right. So that's a very good question. My Breaking India book, towards the end I have a chapter saying that actually our diplomacy to them, to the Americans should be that actually the Breaking India, is, uh, Breaking India project is against your interest. That's what you're saying. It's against the US interest to destabilize because if India got destabilized, imagine what a big mess it will be for them. I mean, their war against Islam, will the Islamists will win because if they, if they destabilize, it will break into little parts. And what I keep telling them is don't think that a balkanized India will be a Christian India. It will more likely be partly uh, Chinese and partly Islamized India because there will be so much turmoil and there's people on both sides. There's Pakistan, Bangladesh, there's China there. So the American ability to hang on to territory after they created, after they broke the existing order, there will be so much chaos. It will be 100 times more than Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq and all those places because it's so easy to, for Americans to go and destroy very difficult to then figure out what to do after that. Okay, and then after the destruction, they end up with a situation that's far worse than there was in the first place. This happened when they got rid of the Shah of Iran. It happened when they got rid of this Saddam Hussein. It was a stupid thing to do to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Nasty fellow as he was, he was keeping control. There was no problem at that place. And even with the Syrian guy, whatever he may be like, at least uh, He's, he's bad to his people, but he's not bad to outsiders. I mean, I'm being a little selfish there. He's horrible to his people, but he's not exporting it to other places. So the Americans need to be told this. This is a very strong message I don't think the Indian has given to them. That the, the, I don't think the Indian side has really given that destabilizing India is a nightmare for you. It will create a havoc and you'll just lose this clash of civilization that you've started, you know. So uh, the logic is this. Now, to some extent, we haven't communicated this, in my opinion. Uh, to some extent, I think a lot of small vested interests exist in India where they're optimizing a narrow interest of their own and not looking at the whole country. There are a lot of these NGOs, fault line people that I've named there, who want to keep this going because that's their, their way of getting money, funding, and so on, and patronage. 
So the destabilization of India uh, is falling out of is falling out of kind of control. This sort of thing is getting out of hand. Uh, not necessarily because the Western interests are doing it, but because the Indian vested interests have reached a point where they are driving the West. I know of cases where Indians go looking for uh, making a case that we need your help. You are the Ma Bap and you better help us. We got this problem, that problem. I am the guy who can manage the program. Give me this money. You know. So the the grant, uh, uh, this whole grant thing, people looking for grants and getting grants, and they have to show to the sponsor that they are helping some community and then this makes the sponsor look good. He put in his annual report that I'm saving all these people in this third world country. So this uh, has taken a life of its own so to some extent. Now as far as uh, grand designs are concerned, they also exist. Grand designs also exist. US likes to bet on both sides. So it's good to keep India stable. One of my arguments there is U.S. does not want India to become another China. That would be big nuisance. U.S. at the same time does not want India to become another Afghanistan falling apart or a Pakistan. That would be a big nuisance. So how to keep it from becoming too strong and how to keep it from falling apart has been the strategy till now. I don't know what Trump will do, but till now it has been a strategy that says don't go all out and help them because that will make them too strong. And don't try to undermine them, that will fall apart, that's bad news also. Just keep it going like it is. So I call this in the book, I mean, I'm not, uh, I hope, uh, don't, don't attack me for being a sexist, but I call this the mother-in-law syndrome. Because mother-in-law says that if these two are too much together, I am out of power. But if they fight to have a divorce, then I have nowhere to go. So I got to keep them going. But if they're too strong, I do some kit pit and make them kind of fight and all. But if the fault gets out of hand, I put him back together also. This keeps me in business. So this is a mother-in-law syndrome to some extent that the West is playing. I don't think they have realized that this could, this is playing with fire. This could be very dangerous. This thing could happen. I mean, West Bengal is highly vulnerable to Bangladesh in many ways. And that would cut off the whole Northeast. I think that Eastern part is far more problematic for India's security than the Pakistan border, I would say. Uh, which after the JNK situation and certain other places that are infested with these problems, like Kerala has got, got a lot of problems also, uh, I would say that the whole eastern part is very vulnerable, including West Bengal. So uh, India, Indians need to, I'm going to uh, start a new strategy. So I'll, so people will not be uh, sleeping about this. I have to wake up I, my, my books to wake people up have had an impact up to a point, but I need to up the ante. So I'm going to uh, scare, sometimes you get attention when you scare the hell out of somebody. So I decided I'm going to go to corporates and say that Ernst & Young and these Moody's and Standard & Poor's when they do risk assessment should put in another nine items saying risk of breaking India forces succeeding. What will happen if somebody blows up a Reliance's pipeline or some optical fiber network or this thing or that thing? The disruption to your, your marketplace, the disruption to your production ability. I mean, Sensex could come down, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent if these kind of things start happening. 
are they likely to happen how much how what is the possibility they may happen i rather than uh, kind of being measured and and you know up to a point i'll show the threats and leave it there i, I intend to go further and in my uh, work i'm going to show that these threats are real i'm going to write books on it uh, and i'm going to get some national security people former police people and military people to help me co-author and promote these books because they believe me they are very scared some of my best readers for breaking india are people in national security indian national security okay so how to shake people up out of this that we are this billionaire and we got this private jet and we own this island here I and mean, all this billionaire business could melt down if the, the breaking india started happening even if 5% of the potential scenarios i have mentioned in the book happened this would these billionaire people that a few of the zeros would vanish right away so i am going to actually uh, start a, a writing more aggressively about the threats to scare people to take att pay attention uh, so you said about the existence of a grand See, see, if you have multiple predators that target this elef big elephant, it's not that they want to break up the elephant, but each got his own ambition and own appetite. So I want to eat his leg and this guy want to eat his whatever, you know, like that. But it, the effect on the elephant will be that he'll be dead. So the breaking India is a consequence of pe many forces each having their own ambition. So I think, for instance... So I am coming to that. So I am trying to, first of all, I have broken the big problem into little problems. So I think there is a religion issue. There is an international uh, expansionism both in Christianity and in Islam which has been there from their very beginnings. And you can't hold them responsible because this is the instruction they got from God. It is written there, you have to evangelize. In the other case, you have to have uh, Darul Islam take over. So the expansionism of of top-down institutionalized, highly organized, militancy-kind-of-oriented religions has been there for a long time. You can't de deny it. I spent a lot, my Breaking India book started when a fellow from a church came back to Princeton uh, and uh, he, we, I was sitting at lunch and this guy came and told me he's part of this Afro-Dalit project and that is why he went to India. I'd never heard of Afro-Dalit project and I went to his office. He had this map on his wall which I put on the cover of the book publisher was scared to put it on the cover of the book. So we put this disclaimer, this is not a valid map and all that because, you know, otherwise he thought I was scared. So uh, this was hanging on that guy's wall and he was part of this project. So I just pretended like I'm just curious, interested. He told me a lot of things. So I went and uh, pursued uh, all those organizations in the U.S. that were involved in sending funds and whatnot for these kind of things. And the amazing thing is that they all believe that this is their mission. They are really convinced intellectually this is their mission to spread. Now, uh, the, the China won't uh, allow foreign kind of thing. They have, you have to be a Chinese like we discussed below, domestic kind of a thing. It, the heavy-handed foreign intervention they won't allow. Uh, the Arab countries will not allow heavy amount of Christian intervention. So India, is a, India is the prime target. It is the prime target for expansion, has been for the last 25 years. So there is that going on. Then there is this Islamic expansion. It's not about religion. You see, what I'm saying, do not think there is a problem I'm seeing in Islam. There is an Arabization. Arabization is a different thing than Islamization. And the way, the, uh, the, play, the moment I learned this was in Indonesia, 
I used to have a business in Indonesia, so I used to go there all the time. And I found that the, they are Muslims, but their name, this guy's Ram, and this guy's Sita, and this bank is called some, you know, Ram Bank and all that. They have names like that. Their language is Bahasa. And they, they, they were just like Indians. So I wanted to ask them, and uh, they introduced me to a professor in the university there. So I wanted to understand what is this, what is your history, what is your narrative, what is all this going on. And they said that uh, we consider in India to be our mother motherland, our mother culture, and uh, we are of that origin, and we are like that, that's their view. And then they became Muslim, but they did not lose, this is very important, they did not lose their identity, the civilizational identity remained Bahasa, uh, with all this background of Indian influence, Indian background, uh, religion being Islam. So it's a very interesting case study, you know, uh, there. The uh, Bangladesh war happened because Sheikh Mujibur Rahman uh, said, I want Bengali as a national language and not Urdu because we are Muslim, but we are Bengali. He said that. He was very clear on that. And the uh, Pakistani, uh, West Pakistan people were not able to tolerate that. So he got the votes. He should have been president of the whole Pakistan, East and West, but they sent their army to crack down on him. That's the history of how Bangladesh came about. So there again, you have a conflict between a civilization and a religion. So this religion imposed that we must take over your civilization and replace it with Arabic civilization. That it was a clash of Bengali versus Arabic Urduized civilization. And in Indonesia, what these guys told me is that uh, very, very few people have gone to the Hajj. When they come back, they get totally transformed. They've changed their clothes. They change their name. They're told don't mix with the rest of the people. They're not true Muslims. So Islam has got levels. So if you're Muslim, it's one thing. But then the next level is to go and Islamize, to Arabize you. This is happening now very rapidly in Kerala. So they are uh, replacing the local language uh, schools uh, with uh, Urdu. Uh, Urdu got nothing to do with Kerala. But it's, so it's a, it's a discontinuity and disruption and intervention and subversion of native language, native culture, because you are not good enough Muslim as long as you are, that, you are still there. So the, the, that's another force that is, that is going on. Now, besides religion, Religion is not the only culprit because China has its designs. China is not happy. China would not like an India to be very successful because it's the only country capable of competing because of its scale and size and whatnot and you know, wage rates and whatnot. China, India is the only country that could come in the way of China becoming the unquestioned, unchallenged number one superpower. It's the only country. They would not like to have that happen. So they have this proxy of Pakistan to do all the dirty work and all the, I don't think China will ever attack India. I don't think militarily they'll attack India, they'll get Pakistan to do that. They'll get Pakistan to fight. They just pay them, put them, you know, uh, uh, hire them as mercenaries to do all that. Uh, why would they threat, risk themselves when somebody else willing to do the dirty work? So uh, my, my, I would consider China is definitely uh, into this intervention in India in a, in a, in a serious way. Uh, not only limited to a uh, few regional border disputes, but more centrally. I believe that. They're also quite uh, ambitiously uh, imperializing uh, Africa. I mean, they're, 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 their imperial kind of strategy in Africa is quite active, quite well known. And nobody's really taking that seriously, but people ought to take that seriously. So I think as far as the West is concerned, besides the Republican right-wing 
Christian lobby, which, by the way, supported Trump in a big way. So uh, you got to be careful. He may turn that on again. It was uh, very aggressive in the Reagan and uh, senior Bush era. And then it sort of went down a little bit in terms of the US government support. But it may, we don't know whether the Trump uh, era they will turn on, uh, you know, the aggressive evangelism as part of uh, US government policy. I mean, there are books written on CIA and ch American church nexus. There's books written on it. There was an article, if you are interested, you write to me, I can send you. Wall Street Journal had an article a few years ago uh, uh, called, uh, the front page article called, uh, uh, Christian Evangelism as US Foreign Policy. There was an article like that. Whole discussion. And that is a very good reference point for books you can read because you refer to authors. You can look up those authors. They've written books on this whole thing. It started in the early 1900s uh, when the policy was the church decided that uh, it should lobby to uh, make US po foreign policy aligned with its interests. And then there you have uh, uh, Pew Trust and Templeton Foundation, two very big foundations that are very actively involved in the, in the intellectual level of this, the intellectual level of creating a narrative which says that human rights, human rights program uh, is a very important uh, veneer and face and facade to do these interventions in foreign countries because you, you constantly collect data about them and when you need to uh, twist their arm or put them under duress to negotiate something, you can also put this threat of human rights and you know we will turn on this human rights machinery against you. So that is a kind of uh, uh, a button that the U.S. is keeping that can push. Uh, and uh, I don't want to speculate, uh, I don't want to tell you whether it's true or false, but there is a speculation that uh, such uh, compromise has, uh, there's already a compromise of the current government uh, because, you know, just like the Russians can hack and find out what's going on, uh, so can CIA. And there is a huge amount of database on important Indian people that uh, can be compromised. And whether that's already being used uh, or, or could be used, I don't want to comment. Uh, but I, it wouldn't surprise me at all that this is the case because our important people use Gmail. They use Gmail and Hotmail. I mean, th this is, it's amazing that highly sensitive, highly uh, confidential information uh, from uh, very serious people, they just send it on Gmail not realizing that whether you delete it and the other guy deletes it make no difference. Once it's gone on Gmail, it's there in the permanent archive. And it is reports coming year after year of how many instances when the FBI and CIA get access to uh, these, uh, so, uh, these uh, social media companies and Google and all these guys and, and ask them for access to this or that record and they get it. So if you've been sending Gmails, you shouldn't be surprised that one day but that this is already in the dossier. And with the software that does, you know, this big data kind of software that keeps analyzing and processing, uh, the intelligence exists about what we are doing that we may think is protected. So this kind of intervention, all of this, when you put together, India is more vulnerable than most people would like to talk about. Most people are willing to talk about. But that's my, my view. you talking about the importance of the think tank of of USA, China, etc. So why do you think the government hasn't come well, we have been trying to do the think tank ourselves uh, to the limited extent our funding allows. 
Uh, and uh, in fact, I'll tell you, uh, during the, uh, I think it was 12, 10, 12 years ago, uh, during the early Bush era, or during the Clinton era or something, uh, Woodrow Wilson School in Princeton University decided they want an India program, and they couldn't get an India government interest in this. So they asked me, one professor, Shivaji Sondi, he's a physics guy. He's M.L. Sondi, the MP, his son. So he's a friend. So he comes to me and says, can Infinity Foundation be the Indian side? And I said, but me, I'm not Indian government or anything. He said, no, no, but it look good. We'll go to Princeton University. We'll create a U.S.-India program, Infinity Foundation, the Indian side, and just do it for a couple of years. We will prove it works. And then the, in, uh, Princeton University got more than enough money. They'll take it over and do fund it on their own. So to incubate it. So Infinity Foundation funded it. And the program was that uh, four or five uh, prominent Indians, one was head of RAW, one was uh, this guy who was the foreign minister, uh, uh, Jit Singh or Jagjit Singh, who was that? Just one Singh. Just one Singh came, uh, these kind of guys. They brought various people, paid for all that. And then the US side sent some people. So we were doing all this stuff for a couple of years. And the Princeton University people said this is a good program and then we don't have to fund it anymore. So I'm giving you examples of where we've been successful in being a catalyst in getting things started. Uh, Indian, this is something the Indian government should have had uh, non-government think tanks which they quietly fund. They should do that. I mean, so that it doesn't look like it's a government thing going on. They should just say, okay, you know, we'll just go do it. We'll just fund you in some way. We'll just whatever. You organize all these things. They should be doing that. Now, there is something called Observer Research Foundation. At, it was started by uh, Ambani, Dhirubhai Ambani. Uh, R.K. Mishra was a right-hand man of Dhirubhai Ambani, uh, and he was put in charge to start this, and it was a think tank. It was during his time, at that time. So R.K. Mishra was a very good friend. He came to me many times. He stayed in my house. We helped him in this think tank business. Uh, one or two of the scholars that had worked with me became full-time employees of the Observer Research Foundation. And we told him what to do, what not to do, don't fund this South Asian studies if it is tainted, unless you can get a list of requirements and demands which we told him what they were. He died and now they have gone, they've gone into a different direction. They're not so much into international you know, relations, but they've gone into their own direction. So that was an attempt to do that. Uh, so there are little ones here and there. Uh, I don't think any one of them is very important. I don't think they're doing pioneering work. I mean, they're having mainly talks and you know lectures, but you have to do research. You have to send your people to go out and really study something the way the West sends its people to study here. You have to have programs where somebody can go study for one, two, three years. He'll be living there. He will really go deep into their uh, society, their politics, their history. He will be getting first-hand data of his own, not just quoting what the country is saying about itself. That original research about other countries could have been the mission of ICCR. ICCR could have been the think tank. They got a big budget, and, but it's like the prestigious Nehru place and uh, you know, Nehru Center and whatnot. So it's more like uh, sophisticated aristocratic you know, events where people go and they feel very good. But that's not how research is done. Research is not done in that kind of a high profile way. I mean, you know that. So. Uh, I feel that the whole the government is not only in this topic, in general, lacks a research culture. There is a difference between, I told the Minister of HRD that he has ICPR, Indian Council of Philosophical Research, the R is for research, but they don't do research. 
ICHR, Indian Council of Historical Research, that are for research, they're not doing research. I gave lists of things that ought to be researched. They're not doing that, but they're just into surface level talks and some melons and manthans and conclaves and things of that sort. Uh, it's more like a lit fest culture because we like pageantry, we like melas, and, and that's fun, you know. But research is dry, hard working, drudgery, rigor, but if you are good at it, you can make a big impact, you see. So that culture of uh, serious research, uh, we, we haven't had. If you go to uh, how many reports Brookings publishes, you know, or take the top 20 think tanks in the US, Republican, Democrat, whatever, and you look at the output of that, it's pretty impressive. I mean, there's similar things in other countries going on. China has a lot of this kind of work also. In their own language, they do it, so we can't even understand what they're doing. India hasn't had that. It's very sad. Thank you. In today's session, we were introduced to a different dimension of diplomacy, the use of international study for promoting national interest. Sir described the topic in detail using various illustrations and also pointed out the missing links and gaps in Indian approach and assessment of Western study on India. This feedback, early in our diplomatic career, I'm sure would go a long way in helping us improve the Indian narrative and portrayal. So, on behalf of the Foreign Service Institute and the 2016 batch of Indian Foreign Service, I thank you for taking out time to provide us this insight, for addressing our questions, and for getting these books for us. It was a pleasure listening to you. Thank you. And I wish all of you good luck in your careers as Indian diplomats. Thank you.